Well, fantastic. Uh, if you trickled in during, uh, during that worship time, just as a reminder, we got a bunch of folks out at our all-church retreat, and I mentioned during our announcements that the plan, my plan originally last week was just to kind of continue through Ephesians. And we would just keep working our way through that book. And, and, but as I started spending time in the week, what I realized was is that what we were going to be talking about over this weekend out there was really important for us to kind of engage in here. It did, it's not just a retreat kind of idea, but really something that we all need to engage in. And then we'd kind of pick Ephesians back up as a whole family when everybody kind of came back from retreat and whatnot. So what I want to do this morning is I want to explore some of the things that we were talking about this weekend that I think are, are very vital, at least in terms of how most of us approach our spiritual life. So our theme for this weekend, and we're out on, the, on our all-church retreat, has been the idea of spiritual renewal and what, it, what takes place in our hearts in order to reorient us to a place where we're excited and on fire and, move, and moving towards our relationship with Christ. And kind of what got us started thinking about that was that a lot of my life is moving from one task to another. It's finds a lot of accomplishment of removing something from a list. Uh, sometimes I'll complete something and I'll add it to the list just to scratch through it, right? Because I need the, the kind of feeling of accomplishment. And we move from one thing to another to another and we end up at 1030 at night and we just kind of roll into bed, take a deep breath and try and do it all over again. And, and life, while not terrible, right, oftentimes get in, gets in these patterns of just kind of apathy when it comes to our spiritual lives. Like we wake up and it's Sunday already and we're going, man, it's kind of gloomy and I don't know, maybe today's a good day to sleep in. Like our spiritual lives are, are really oftentimes moved to a place of uh, sort of apathetic unrest where we're just kind of like, I love the Lord and I believe he is who he is, but I'm definitely not driven or moved with fervency or power or passion in terms of my desire to know him and study his word and pray. And so the next thing I know, our prayer life is really just made up of times before meals or occasionally at the end of an evening, or if I have a men's or a women's Bible study or if I'm at church and my spiritual life is tied or sewn together by just spiritual activities that I engage in, but not the driving force of my heart and my life. And so this idea of renewal is, is really by definition the idea of remaking something that has stopped. So by renewing something, we start something that has come to a halt and we're starting it again or we're remaking or repairing something that's broken. That's the idea of renewal. And when it comes to spiritual renewal, a lot of us just think, I would like to go back to maybe where I was or just if I could get back to that place a few years ago where I felt like my heart was really on fire for the Lord. But what we understand about spiritual renewal biblically is that Jesus always makes things better. That we don't have to long for a return to something or some place or, or a time period in our life that was, that was good. Jesus says, I want to make things better than they ever were. So spiritual renewal is not the act of starting something that was going well again. It's the act of making where we were even better than where we have been. And so it's not about returning to something. It's about making things new. And part of this idea is saying, if I'm going to re-engage my spiritual life, there are some things that have got to change in the way my heart is set, and the way that my mind is set, and in the actions that I have. And so what we've been doing this weekend is we've been walking through Colossians chapter 3, exploring those things that Paul gives the church in Colossae to basically restart and re-energize their hearts and lives for him. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. The same thing we've been unpacking this past weekend, we're going to do a little bit of this morning. Of course, we don't have near as much time as we did this weekend, but we're going to begin that process so that 
I think we can begin to understand the renewal and the reset of our minds and our hearts and a call to action that we have. So, and then we'll pick up in Ephesians next week. But if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn over to Colossians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite uh, sections of text in all of Scripture. This whole chapter is fantastic. And so I'd encourage you this week, we're only going to look at the first five verses, but I'd encourage you at some point in time this week to just keep reading. Go ahead and just pick up in verse 6. If you haven't done a, a quiet time in a while, or if you haven't spent time in the Word in a while, this is a great place to start. Tomorrow morning, just grab your Bible and start in verse 6 and just start reading. Um, it's a really powerful chapter. Now, the church at Colossae was a similar kind of concept that was unfolding in Ephesus. So for those who have been here for the past few five or so weeks, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. We've talked a lot about what's happening in Ephesus and Paul's relationship with the church uh, that is there and his letter to the Ephesians. Well, Colossae was about 100 miles away, and most scholars believe that Paul evangelized that city the same time that he was spending his two and a half years in ministry in Ephesus. That city and Laodicea, they were relatively close, and so Paul would make journeys for a week or two or whatever, and he'd spend time there, and he took the gospel there. and He had a deep affection for them the same way he did the Ephesians, but they weren't quite as spiritually mature as the Ephesians were, and so his letter to them does address a lot of heresy that's popping up, and it does call them to return or renew their hearts for Christ, where the letter to the Ephesians is basically saying, you are the church, go and be like Jesus. The letter to the Colossians is like, remember who you are first, right? Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. Don't get caught up in the world. It's a lot more of, of instruction than it is sending. And so, but it's a great, great letter. And so he writes it most likely in the very same time he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, sitting under house arrest in Rome, in uh, this sort of house prison, if you will. He writes this letter and probably sent them at the same time from the same carrier from Rome as they go down to Asia and the Roman provinces down there and deliver the letter to the church in, the, uh, in Ephesus and to the Colossians. And so uh, all these things are really closely tied together with Paul. So we're going to be looking at chapter 3, and chapter 3 really is a call to remember that as followers of Christ, they are not part of the world, and that there is a call to something much deeper and much more spiritual for their lives, but they've got to be willing to do the things that it's going to take. And so in this text, we're going to get a qualifier, and we're going to get three little calls that I think are really powerful, that I think are going to lead us to a place of understanding, at least, what the idea of spiritual renewal really is and where it begins. So if you've got your Bible, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 5, uh, let's pray, and then we will just kind of dive in and see where it leads us this morning. Lord, what a privilege to open your word together. What a privilege to engage in truth. Lord, we, we say this a lot, but an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Those are your words. You tell us it is the theopunestos, which is the breath of God. And so, Lord, we know that Scripture is who you are. And so, therefore, Lord, we know it's not a guidebook or a suggestion manual. It is very much your love letter poured out for us, and therefore, we take it seriously. So we want you to teach our hearts through it this morning. We want you to impact our lives. Take a moment as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Whatever that might mean, whatever that might look like, I'm not sure. But just ask the Lord to teach you something fresh or new or to set your mind on a path for renewal, just whisper, Lord, teach me.
And as we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone around you. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Maybe you're here for maybe the first or second time and it seems a little odd. Just, just try it. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Just pray something simple. Ask God to move in them or to bless them or to encourage them. We want to be a church that cares deeply about the spiritual lives of the people around us. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is just, it's just not about you. So pray for the people around you. Care about their spiritual growth. Lord, you are fully God. We fully trust you. We confess that at times in our lives, we come to these places of just kind of mediocrity, apathy. We come to a place of discouragement at times or frustration or maybe just we just don't care. Um, or our life with you has become a habit. Church is an afterthought. Your word is something we want but we don't long for. Prayer is something that we believe in but we don't engage in. We just get lost in the mundane of life, and our spiritual life seems to go with it, and we're called to so much more. So this morning, Lord, help us engage in this thought process about renewing our heart and our mind spiritually so that we might fully know you. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. So Colossians chapter 3 in its, in its entirety is really a call. It's a, a large call to the church. And that's why I'm encouraging you at some point in time this week to just finish reading it out. Start in verse 6. We're going to be in 1 through 5 and just keep reading because it's going to be a continuation of what we start this morning. And, and this past weekend out in our, at a retreat, we worked through the, all 15 verses. And so we're just going to be looking at the first five this morning. But this is what Paul says to the church and what he calls them to. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul does a few things here. One, he gives a qualifier to open this chapter up. Um, And then he gives some specific instructions about what it's going to take to begin to reorient your heart and your mind and your behavior to begin to engage spiritually in a mindset that's different than the world. All right, And that's really what he's trying to get the church to understand. He's saying, look, you are no longer part of this thing called the world because something has happened in you. And that's the qualifier. And the qualifier in this verse comes right in verse 1 where it says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Some of those versions say, if then. So since then or if then, what that tells us is he's talking to believers. Since then, meaning all of you are believers, or if then, some of you are believers, but he's addressing those that are reading this letter, those that are part of unpacking these words as believers. So since then you have been raised with Christ. So saying, listen, What I'm getting ready to tell you is designed for those of you that have surrendered your hearts to Jesus. And that qualifier is actually a separation from the world. He is separating this group of people out from everybody else that might hear these words that are to follow. So because you've been set apart, right, because you have been raised in Christ, something is different in you. 
Now, we know that to be true, right? Because as followers of Christ, what that means is that we have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, we have died to ourselves, and we have been raised in him. It's this idea of baptism, right? It's the very imagery of baptism that we put to death our old self, and then we are raised to life in Christ. So he says, since you have been raised to life in Christ, in other words, those of you who have been to death to yourself, been raised, been saved, you've been baptized, you've been buried in your old way of life and raised a new way of life, something should be radically different in you. Your life is no longer yours, is what the qualifier is. You are no longer you. You have been put to death and you have been raised. Paul says it this way in his letter to Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So Paul says in that letter to the church in Galatia, that the mentality is that I have literally been killed with Christ and I've been raised to new life and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, I am his and he is mine. It's that idea out of 2 Corinthians about being a new creation, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And he says that God has done this work, that he has reconciled you to himself through Christ's work. 2 Corinthians 5.18. You know what the idea of reconciliation is? My favorite definition of it is, is to bring back to harmony with. What that means is that through Christ's redeeming work on the cross, through his death and resurrection, when you surrender your life to him, God has reconciled you to him. And that idea of reconciliation, to bring back to harmony, means that God has taken what was in disharmony, which is you and your sinful life, or me and my sinful life, and he, through Christ, has brought it back to harmony with his heart. So in one sense, being saved is to be brought back to harmony with God. Meaning God originally created creation to be at harmony with who he is. To walk with him, to know him, to experience all of his fullness. And creation broke that harmony through sin. And sin has poisoned and ruined the world and we are at disharmony with God. Yet when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we're crucified with Christ and raised to new life, God brings our, heart, our hearts back to harmony with his. You think about that. You were created to have a harmonious heart with God. That the things that he cares about, you care about. The things that move him, move you. The things that stir the heart of God, stir yours. The idea of harmony is that we are in this syn syncopated kind of beating rhythm. And he's, this is the qualifier he's saying. He's saying, you are no longer you, which means you are not part of this world. You are part of me. Your heart beats in harmony with mine. You have been rescued and redeemed. Therefore, you are not created for apathy. You are not created for spiritual um, mediocrity. You are not created to move from one spiritual event to another without caring. You have the heartbeat of Christ dwelling within you. You were created for so much more. And so Paul looks at this church and he says, what I'm getting ready to tell you is for you because you are no longer yours. So you don't get settled into the rhythms of the world, which is the giant trapping of the Christian life, right? We become settled into a world that we do not belong in. We are not created for, and we are not alive in. So Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, right, this is for you, pay attention. That's the qualifier. And then he gives kind of three specific calls that are really important. The first, he says, set your hearts on things Above. So because you have been raised with Christ, because you are no longer you, because you have been saved and redeemed, set your hearts on things above, right? So what does that actually mean to set your heart on things above? He's going to tell us to set our minds and our hearts, they're both very different, but what does it mean to set your heart on things above? 
Well, we don't have to look very far. If we go to the Sermon on the Mount, right, in Jesus in chapter 6, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he's basically talking to his disciples. These 12 guys are sitting on the side of the mountain, and Jesus is giving them a bunch of instructions about life. He's saying, listen, don't murder people. Like, don't get divorced. Like, love everyone. Like, don't worry about tomorrow. He gives all these incredible instructions. And as he's teaching, people begin to gather. And that crowd of 12 turns into a crowd of hundreds. And Jesus has this sort of long recorded discourse, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is never really a sermon per se. It was just Jesus teaching his disciples when a crowd broke out. And in that, right, in that kind of Matthew chapter 6 area, that Sermon on the Mount, he begins to talk about the world. And Jesus gives these instructions to his disciples, right? He says this in chapter 6, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, you have the opportunity, if you wish, to store up everything you want to here on earth. And he's talking about grains and material things mainly, like treasures that the world would say, man, that guy or that girl or that family, they have got it together. They have got houses and land and cars and things and clothes and stuff. They have got an abundance of things, right? And he says, you have that right as a person. You can store up things, but something will happen. Moth will come in and they will begin to eat it away. Rust will come in and begin to destroy it. Persevere, or, uh, preserving things was very hard to do back in those days, right? Without refrigeration and all those kind of things, things decayed easily. So you go to all this trouble to store it up, and then the, the worldly nature of life, right? The rain and the stuff and the things would easily destroy it. The rats would come in. People would dig into your house, and I literally mean dig into your house to steal it. Thieves oftentimes would dig a hole in the adobe wall and steal your stuff. Thieves would just come in and take it. And what Jesus is saying is you can spend all this time fighting for things that are material only to have them not last because none of them will last. Moth will get it, rust will get it, thieves will get it, right? So he's talking spiritually, but he's also talking about things of places that are temporary that we put our hearts. He says that's where our treasure is. Where we begin to put our hearts, we're going to find the things that matter. And so if our hearts are wrapped up in things of the world, Right? That's what we're going to come to treasure. If we treasure things of the world, we're going to find our hearts intricately attached to them. And that happens to us. If you've ever truly loved a possession of yours, whether it's a car or a house or a, some kind of something you saved up for and bought or it's a vintage guitar, whatever it may be, like something you've got, your heart gets intricately tied to it. It's a thing. It's temporary. But our hearts get tied to them. And we understand quickly, right, that our hearts get tied to worldly things. And not just worldly things, but worldly also ideas that are temporary, like recognition. Uh, we want people to know what we do and how we do it. We want to get recognition at work or even in our own marriages. We want the temporary praise that comes from people saying, like, look, you've done a great job. You've worked really hard. I'm really grateful for you. All of these things begin to stroke our heart, and we begin to put our heart into them, and we begin to work for them. I'm working for the praise of people, right? My heart is tied to the affection that people give me when they see me perform at work. I need to get to the highest level of whatever I am in a profession, not because I want to, but because sometimes I need the strokes to my ego. My pride is welling up in me. I begin to attach my life to things of the world. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, do not set your hearts on earthly things. And our heart 
is where our treasure is. So if I were to ask you to glance at your life, and of course this is not a rhetorical question, then just say, what is it that you truly treasure in this life? None of us that are here that are part of that raised to life in Christ, that that qualifier, would ever out loud say, well, yeah, man, my treasure's here, definitely love my house, I'm going to, you know, whatever. We would fight to say the material things, but we live very differently. None of us would want to say it's the materialism or those temporary praises or accolades or things that people give us or that we fight for, that we long for, right? The affection of people maybe because we didn't get it growing up. Whatever it is, we fight for them with our heart and we sink our treasure in there. We find our worth there. We find our worth in the things that people say or in what we can accrue so that people will look at us and say, man, they got it together. None of us would say that out loud, but our lives betray us, right? They give us away things that we spend money on, the things that we store up, the things that matter, give us away. And Paul says, part of the reason you're stuck in a place that is not alive spiritually is because you've attached your hearts to things that aren't. If you attach your hearts to things of the world, you're going to watch your spiritual heart decay. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if your treasure is something here, and it begins to fall apart, so will you. And those things that are are also very worldly, right? They can be relationships. We attach our heart to them and they become our identity. When they fall apart, we know nothing because we don't have Christ. We've put all of our heart into whatever this thing is relationally and when it falls apart, or it happens a lot of times with work, we attach our identity for years and years and years in pursuing a career. We go to school, we go to grad school, we go post-grad grad school, we go through residency, we do all these kind of things. We attach our life to these titles and things that if they fall apart... We oftentimes are left empty because we've sown our hearts to something that's tied to the world and we don't know who we are aside from that because our heart is attached to something to the world. Now, it's not saying don't have those things. It's not, it's not saying don't do them. He's saying that when we invest our hearts in the things of the world, our treasure is there. So we have to fight to put our heart in things that are eternal. It doesn't mean you can't have a car or a house or a career, but what it means is that your heart can't live there. Being a follower of Christ means, although I engage and live in this world, my heart, it doesn't own my heart. It doesn't belong there. So stuff will always just be stuff. At the end of the world, if we lose it, that's okay. I'm fully alive in Christ. Take my car, my job, my house, my things. That's okay. I am content in Christ. I am not worried about what the world will say. My heart and my treasure are not sown to it. So, yes, it's stuff and it's nice and it's a convenience, but it's just things. It doesn't last. And so Paul says that if you want to begin this process of renewing spiritually, you have to begin to remove your heart from the things of the world. Focus on things above. And what are those things above that we focus on? Things that last for eternity, right? Sharing the gospel with the people that you love. Like the idea of saying, I want my mom or my sister or my coworker to know Christ so bad because I want them to know eternity. I want to invest in things that matter, memories. I want to invest in legacies. I'm still reaping legacy, right, from my father's father's fathers of stories that they've passed down. We are reaping legacy of Paul who invested spiritually in people that wrote those things down, that passed them on, that turned it into these books and words, and we are sitting on his legacy of something that matters. That Paul didn't take his kind of religious fame, which he certainly had, and turned it into multiple houses across the Roman region, right? And chariots and things that he stored up. Paul's heart was tied to the gospel. 
And things were a means to get places so that he could share the gospel with other people and we reap the legacy, right? So he says this, he says, set your heart on things above. Then he takes it one step further. He says, and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? Set your mind on things above. So heart and mind are very different, right? They're very similar in terms of how they drive us, but they're very different. The heart is where our our passion and our treasure lies, right? But our mind is where most of our time is spent dwelling, right? If you're anything like me, and I'm sure you're not, but on some level you may be, our minds are often preoccupied with just stuff that has to happen. Like my mind very seldom has time to think about deep, real things that matter. It's usually I've got to get from here to there to there to there to finish up there to knock this off the to-do list to get this down to where life is manageable and we can do this again tomorrow. And I can feel accomplished or not accomplished, but most of the time, the energy I spend are not on things that truly matter eternally. They're on things that matter, right? Like I need to make sure that this thing is fixed, the house or the water comes on or the toilet doesn't overflow or that I'm working so that my kids can go to college or so that, you know, we might be able to do things like keep the power on. Like they're things that matter, but they're not things that matter necessarily for eternity. And Paul says that we can literally be driven by things that are not terrible, but we have to set our minds on things above. We have to figure out ways in our life to reorient the way that we think so that the things that we think about are things of God. And the world has a dangerous way of betraying us, of sneaking in unintentionally and occupying our thoughts with things that are rooted in the world. And that's where fear and anxiety and worry creep in. Well, what happens if my husband loses his job? What are we going to do? We probably probably need to start thinking about that or start stacking these things up or or what are we going to do if this unfolds or that unfolds and we begin to let anxiety creep in like, I don't know that we're going to be able to handle it or what are we going to do or how's this going to unfold or what if this my job downside, whatever it is, we begin to let those things creep in and they begin to occupy and we begin to think on them. We begin to run with those thoughts. We go to the, the farthest possible extreme with them in our minds. We begin to get our heart at unrest, and the next thing you know, the majority of our time is thinking about things that are tied directly to the world, and it's not that they don't matter. Losing your job would be a huge thing, but we become so occupied with the idea that it displaces the conversation that says, Jesus, do I trust you enough to take care of this family? Jesus, I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I want to be at a place where we're fully ready to just put our hope in you. We think about things that are tied definitely to the world. And Paul knows it's a problem. He actually tells the Philippians in his his letter to them, which is really another great, incredible letter. But he he tells the Philippians, he says, you got to change the way that you think. And he says, what you're filling your mind with is a whole bunch of lies. You're buying into what the world says, and it's poisoning you. You're buying into the world telling you things that matter that don't. You know, essentially, for us, the equivalent is you're on social media all the time. You're poisoning your life with wanting to be like everybody else so much, right, that you're not even thinking about things that matter. Instead, you're wondering, how come they get to have that life and you don't? Or how come everything always works out for them? Or how come that family always gets to win at life? And social media becomes a poison pill of our culture. This is what Paul says. He says, you've got to change the way that you begin to think. And he says it in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 8, he says, listen, brothers, sisters, here's what I want you to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, 
whatever is right, whatever is admirable, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, that's what you should be thinking about. So I began to do a list this week as I was kind of getting ready for the retreat and thinking about Sunday of what I think about on a daily basis. True, noble, right, excellent, admirably, lovely, praiseworthy. Most of those qualifiers didn't fall into my thought process. I thought about a lot of things, some super unhealthy, some lies, and some just really busy, but I didn't find myself carving out time to think about things that were noble or right or excellent or praiseworthy or really just all out healthy for me, right? I felt overrun and tired and how are we going to get all these things done and we're gearing up for a retreat and stuff, but how are we going to get all these things done and accomplished and knocked out and I still have to get a sermon written and that's the way my mind was playing out. I still have to do this, which is usually the greatest joy of my week is to think about how am I going to squeeze that in to all this? And oftentimes that's the way my life is, right? I find myself in a place where the things that I focus on are wrapped deeply into the world. Sometimes they're really poisonous, and sometimes they're just superficial. But either way, they're not of the Lord. And what Paul is saying is that an active part of being spiritually renewed is taking captive thoughts and exchanging those thoughts for things that are of the Lord. I'm not going to let this worry run me. You don't get that power in my life, Satan. You don't get it. So instead of taking that fear, that anxiety, and letting it run through my soul, I'm instead going to think about things that are excellent instead of the things that are negative. Because my mind, time, time and time again, will go to the negative. That, that does not get a place in me. I'm taking the negative and I'm rooting it out and I'm going to change it with something that's excellent. I'm going to take that part of despair that says, man, life is hard, this week is going to be terrible, and I'm going to exchange it for something saying, no, this week is going to be an opportunity to praise you. I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. I'm going to need your help, Lord. And so I'm going to think about things that are praiseworthy, which is, Lord, I need you today. I'm going to exchange that worldly part that wants to come in and tell me a lie, and I'm going to exchange it for something that is of the kingdom. It's important for us to take captive our thoughts. Spiritual renewal begins with understanding that the enemy will do everything he can to dispel your heart and your mind from things that are of eternal value. As someone that has been raised from, from the dead, literally with Christ, Satan cannot steal your soul. We talked about this in our study of Hebrews. From a theological standpoint, you are sealed and saved, but what he can do is he can destroy your effective nature and put you into a place of spiritual unrest and worldly apathy. And he will do everything in his power to keep you there. And so the lies of the enemy are very much pressing into the soul of who we are, saying, you're not worthy. He uses shame as a great tool. He uses worry as a great tool. He uses um, anxiety as a great weapon. He uses negative thoughts as a way to keep our minds at bay from being hopeful. And Paul says, if you're going to renew your mind as someone that has been saved and redeemed, you have to begin to change the way that you think. He tells us later on in Scripture that we have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So when you have that negative one that comes in that wants to poison your soul, you say, no way. I'm not letting you do it. You are my thought. I take you captive. And in Christ's name, you don't get to ruin me today. So I'm not going to let shame come in for the things that I've done in the past and to have the enemy tell me I'm not worthy. I know I'm not worthy. I'm fully aware. But Jesus calls me his beloved, and so I rest in him. 
right? I know this is going to be a hard week. Why do I want to continue to speak that over me? Instead, I'm going to say it's an opportunity for God to display his glory. It's going to be hard. I'm going to need your strength. I'm going to change the way that I think about it. I'm going to use different words and different language. I'm going to use words that matter. Instead of thinking about things that are trivial and negative and hurtful, I'm going to find ways to think about things that are noble and excellent and praiseworthy. And those are the things that are also going to come out of my mouth. Because oftentimes what I dwell on is what comes out of my mouth. And if I'm in negative or if I'm beating myself up or I'm beat up, I beat up the people around me. But instead, I'm going to speak noble truths over the people in my life. I'm going to encourage my wife and my children. I'm going to love them well because I know that my heart is aligned correctly with Christ. Spiritual renewal begins in this place where we take captive our thoughts and our minds and we reorient them, make them new, make them even better than where they were on things that matter. Both our heart and our mind have got to be set on heavenly things. Well, Paul goes on to add this last little piece here, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up today. In verse 4 and 5, he says, there's something else that's going to have to happen, and it's going to have to be an active movement by you, right? This is going to be a hard one, but this is what he says. He says, put to death, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. If you read farther on, he gives you another list down there where he talks about the idea that we have got to get rid of slander and malice and evil language and uh, filthy talk from our lips. He puts all these things in context where he just says, listen, there's going to have to be a place in your life where you're going to put to death your earthly nature. And he uses a word there that's really important. He uses the Greek word nekru, which is the word that literally means to put to death, to slay, or to slaughter. Now, he does it very intentionally, because later on what he's going to say about some other things, he's going to say, rid your life of these things. Very different Greek word. But right here he says, what I want you to do is I want you to put to death, to slay, to murder, to slaughter your earthly nature. There's no politically correct way to cover up the violence in which Paul is saying we have to wage war against the spiritual side of our lives that is trying to destroy us, the earthly nature. We have got to be active in putting to death, in killing, and waging war against the sin in our lives. We have become a people that are complacent with sin, and as long as we're trying to actively not engage with it, we're okay with it being in our lives. But the problem with sin is that it is not a game to God. Sin is death. Sin is destructive. Sin is intolerant in God's holiness. It is not a game. It is not something funny. It's not something that God kind of laughs at in our 20s and waits for us to have children in our 30s to draw us back in. Sin is pure evil, and God wants no part of it for his people. And Paul says, you have got to be at a place where you're willing to wage war against the earthly nature. And he lists these things in here that most of us would say we don't engage in, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, idolatry. I could spend the next kind of hour going through Scripture and explaining how each one of us engages in every one of those things. But what we've done in our hearts is that we have segregated our hearts and lives from the sin that we think is the worst. And we say, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm engaging in that deep of lust or that deep of greed, or that deep of sexual immorality. And so I'm okay on this end. That's really for the, the real offenders. 
And remember, with sin, there is no degrees with God. Everything is a violation of God's holy law. We trust, as we learned in Ephesians, we trespass against him. We violate God, and therefore we are his enemies. We are only saved by grace in Christ. And we have to, on a daily basis, go to war against the sin in our lives, which means when you wake up in the morning, tomorrow, you're going to have to wage war against sin and put to death the part of you that wants to run down that old trail that old way of thinking, that old way of life, to idolize things of the world, to fall in love with greed, to fall in love with things that moth and rust destroy, to fall in love with the idea that I need the praise from people. All of those sins lead to a path of destruction. And we have got to be willing to wage war. And most of us do not see sin as that despicable, and so we just don't fight But sin has a really nasty way of slowly infiltrating our lives, slowly penetrating our hearts and our minds to where we always feel like it's just not too bad until we can no longer breathe, until that behavior becomes a habit, to where those words become part of our soul, to where that negative nature becomes part of breathing for us. That's what sin does. It very seldomly attacks like a tidal wave. Usually it attacks like a slow tide, and the next thing you know, you're neck deep into a behavior or a thought pattern that you know you hate. And then we become comfortable, and we live there. And the next thing you know, we wake up, and our spiritual lives are somewhat apathetic. We go to church, we love the Lord, it's all fine, but we're really just kind of content there. But this is not where we're meant to live. Paul's reminding the church that we are meant for so much more. We've been raised, we've literally been put to death and raised to life in Christ. We are created to have minds that focus on him, hearts that focus on him, that are full of him. And in order to do that, we're going to need to kill the things in our life that are poisoning us. And so if you have things that you know I'm speaking to that are poisoning your heart, God is calling you to put them to death. Do not feed them. Do not put them in the corner. Do not get them out of your life and let them live. Destroy them. If they're attached to a behavior, get rid of that thing or that activity or that whatever. Make the opposite move. Don't let it live in the corner of your life and think that it's okay and you have it under control. Do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Talk to your spouse. Confess. Go help from a community. Go to your life group and just say, we need help. Our marriage is on the rocks. We can't keep hiding it anymore. The negative nature of my heart keeps coming out. I need to push that and fight that at every moment of every day so that the glory and the joy of Christ win in me. Whatever it is, got to be willing to wage war. See, renewal is a mindset. It's something that Christ gives us when we are raised to life in him, but something that we continually have to fight for as followers of Christ. Don't quit fighting. Wage war. Spiritual renewal is the great promise of those who trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning just to to spend some time in your word. We thank you for our other half of our family that's out and outside of Tulsa looking at these same things, talking about the idea of what it looks like to wage war and to fight the spiritual apathy that's in our lives, Lord, and, and renew our hearts and our minds. It's not easy. It's actually really, really hard. It sounds so easy on paper. Just put this to death, fight against that, change the way that I think. But 
It's challenging, Lord. We've, we've created these systems, these rhythms, these patterns that are who we are. And the truth is, a lot of us don't want to change. Like, I oftentimes just don't want to. I become very comfortable, but I, I also hate my own comfort. And so, Lord, I ask that you would transform our thinking. We wouldn't be attached to the things of the world, the temporary, the worldly, the material. Instead, we'd focus on things that leave legacy, that are of eternal significance. Does this matter in the economy of God? Do I get to take this with me when I die? What if I left a legacy of love in my children? What if I focused on things that truly mattered? Loving people well, serving them, encouraging them, being a voice of joy in someone else's heart. What if I built my heart that same way? What if I built my mind that way, that I I decided I was going to change the way that I think? I wasn't going to let the negativity and the shame and the apathy and the the frustration and the, the sort of jealousy about other people's lives and what they have or what I don't have even. Or I just want those things out of me. And so I want to focus on things that are excellent and praiseworthy and noble and admirable. I want to focus on things that matter. I want to build a business. I want to build a family built on things that matter. I want the principles of the kingdom of God to be what matter in my life. I want things of eternity to be what I build my life on and around. And Lord, the the truth is in all that, I'm going to have to go to war. I can't get rid of them on my own. I can't just put them in the corner or stick them in the closet. Lord, I have to fight them and kill them and put them to death. Therefore, that sinful behavior, that sinful thought, I need to destroy it. I've got to separate myself from it. I have to slay it. I've got to kill it. And as violent as that sounds, that's what we're doing. We are waging war against sin in your power and in your name. So, Lord, those of us in here that have that specific behavior that we know is eating at our soul, Let today be the day that we destroy it or that we begin to fight against it or that we take it to battle. It no longer gets to win. That thought pattern, that physical behavior, that thing, it doesn't own me. You've given me victory in Christ, power in his name, and therefore, Lord, I claim what is mine. And so, Lord, we ask to rid those things. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would give us great victory that it's yours alone in Christ, and that we would celebrate and worship you, the one true king who renews the hearts of those who call upon him. Lord, for we have been raised in Christ. There is no greater day than today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Jesus.
amen, and that becomes the, the true reality is that, God, you are the lifter. You are the one that secures our heart. You are the one that does this great work, but you call us, Lord, to put our hope fully and trust in you. We have been raised with Christ. We've got to change the way that we think, reorient our minds and our hearts on things that matter, and be willing to wage war against the sin that so easily eats at our soul. But go out of here and ask the Lord to take that idea of spiritual renewal and make it more than just something you long for, but something you're willing to engage in. To be doing the action that it takes to say, Jesus, I'm all in. Uh, renew my heart and mind. Take me to a place that's better than I've ever been before. That you have so much for me, and I am fully yours. Go in peace.